Hey there, it's Jim Stengel, host of the CMO Podcast. We're all marketers here, so let's be real for a sec. We all know that your website shouldn't be a static asset. It should be a dynamic part of your strategy to build your brand and drive conversions. That's Marketing 101. But 54% of marketing leaders say web updates take too long. That's over half of you listening right now. And that's where Webflow comes in. Their visual-first platform allows you to build, launch, and optimize web pages fast. That means you can set ambitious marketing goals and your site can rise to that challenge. Learn why teams like Dropbox, IDEO, and Orange Theory all trust Webflow to achieve their most ambitious goals today at webflow.com. Want to drive greater success in social commerce? With Deloitte's latest creator economy research, you can. After surveying over 500 creators and 500 brands, our insights are helping CMOs and marketing teams harness the power of content creators. And not only that, but how to do it well. See for yourself by visiting cmo.deloitte.com today. So uh, the first brand you remember in your life having an impact on you. I remember the Sizzleine brand and the move over bacon line. Yeah. It's funny, even today when um, I have an eight-year-old and when, you know, we'll lay down to snuggle for bed, um, she gets mad at me now if I don't call her bacon because <laughs> I say move over bacon. And of course, Sweet. she has no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> right, right. You can actually find the ad on, on YouTube and the ad is um, probably wouldn't resonate today. Hi, I'm Jim Stengel, and I help major brands find their purpose and activate it and the profits follow. For seven years... I was the global marketing officer for Procter & Gamble, where I oversaw the marketing of hundreds of brands. You may not know it, but the CMOs, the chief marketing officers of all of your favorite brands, are trying to connect you with your favorite products and services through purpose. And on this show, I delve into how they do it. Today, my guest on the CMO podcast is David Rubin. David is the CMO of the New York Times. In this podcast, which is really sort of a textbook about building a brand, David shares so many lessons from his times at Unilever, how that evolved into Pinterest, and how he's now helping the New York Times be a fabulous direct-to-consumer, commerce, and journalism company. This is my conversation with David Rubin. Well, David, it is so good to have you on the CMO Podcast. You are one of my favorite brands and one of the great brands of all time. So it's going to be great to unpack that a bit, as well as your, your career path here. But the first thing I want to ask you is, I'm going to give you a test as a marketer. Uh-oh. So I'm going to my saved New York Times articles, and I'm going to read several of the headlines. And I want you to tell me after I read those headlines, what kind of a consumer I am and how you might reach me. Okay. Okay. So the first one is, the memes are pouring the white claw down your throat. Eight podcasts for the spiritual searcher. Six simple bar stretches to try on vacation. The Aperol Spritz is not a good drink. How to do a data cleanse. What should you do about a falling stock market? Nothing. So much for bipartisanship, eh, Mitch? Trump's tax cut was supposed to change corporate behavior. Here's what happened. 36 hours in Traverse City, Michigan. New Zealand's leader, Jacinda Ardern, introduces baby daughter. And on and on. So 36 hours in Hawaii, 36 hours in Cincinnati. So tell me about Jim Stengel. What kind of reader is he? Um, uh, typical, actually. Um, 
the one of the things about the times is that our readers are really um, we think of them as sort of curious people. Um, they're people who have very broad interests. They are sort of lean in kind of people about the world. Um, they're very interested in understanding other people and other cultures. They sort of see life as a series of strung together learning opportunities. Um, when we do our own consumer research, uh, one of the sort of sentences that most aligns people who like the times um, is they say that even when they take a vacation, they don't, they, they even when they want to relax, they want it to be useful. Um, you know, these are people. Yeah, that's who, me. Yeah. These yeah. are people who can't yeah. chill out. Yeah. Um, uh, and so uh, that sounds very much like you. And I think it's what makes the time so special is that we do cover everything from yoga to the last second politics. And, um, and you are not going to have a mode where one minute you want one and one minute you want the other, or at least we can't tell that mode. Mm -hmm. You want both or yeah. all. Um, and one second you want a cooking recipe and the next minute you want to hear about um, transgender opera singers. Uh, and then the next minute you want to hear what's breaking in Capitol Hill. Uh, and, um, and that is really what I think defines our, our audience. And what makes us so special is that you can get the same sort of proposition of quality uh, and the same journalistic process applied, whether it's a, a recommendation in Wirecutter, um, uh, or it's you know the the you know some uh, something in politics. So, what's your your go to first section in the New York Times, digitally or on paper? Um, well, if you're really asking first, it's I listen to the Daily. You do. Yeah. Um, uh, I'm, I'm a commuter from yeah. New Jersey to New York, which means I'm on the bus a very long time, uh, and yeah. I will plow through the daily. You can do the daily and the CMO podcast. I can get all hour and 25 minutes of both <laughs> usually before I get in, sadly. But uh, but yes, so I go to the daily and I think it just gives a, you know, it's interesting um, because, it, you know, it, it isn't a headline review. I mean, there's a little bit at the end, uh, but you just, I think you, you leave having listened to it with just an understanding of something that's really important. Some days it's the topic you'd expect and some days it's not a topic you'd expect at all. Um, uh, but you just feel like you've, or I feel like I've learned something, um, from an angle, uh, that I didn't know. And I think that just makes yeah. the show special. No, I think it's all, I, I am also a daily listener and I use, I do it on the elliptical in the morning. So it's about right. It's about a half hour, a little bit less than that. But to me, it's always interesting what you choose. And I, sometimes I look at the topic and I say, you know, I know all about that. I read that story yesterday and I still listen and I still get a different angle on it. So they do a really good job. I think that's Michael's special gift is just sort of finding the something that you'll care about, but didn't quite know, yep. even when the topic was. I think the one of the things, I mean, it's now, um, uh, you know, such a runaway hit. Um, but when we started, when we first rolled it out, you know, it wasn't obvious that that was the way to do it. Um, you know, I think if, if, if we were just sitting around and I said to you, let's start a news podcast, we probably we would have done something there. that was a lot more headliney. Uh, and a lot more covering current, you know, the most important issue of this very second. Um, and the Daily does do that, uh, but it's not what it's about. Um, and I think that the, I think that the, you know, usually the big hits are the things that aren't the obvious choice. Um, and I think that's why it's become such a hit is that it's, it's surprising, but still useful. And I think that's why people love it. Plus, Michael's just really special and, and the team and how they bring it to life. Yeah. I was looking at Pinterest the other day, and I noticed I think you're working on a patio renovation with a fire pit. So do, do I have that right? I should have hit private on that board. <laughs> right. Well, I want you to tell me, how's that going, and how is that like making an ad? How is Pinterest? Building, yep. build, doing a, pit, a patio okay. and a fire pit and a renovation project. 
How is that like making an ad? I, I knew you were going to, because I listened to your podcast, <laughs> I knew you were going to ask me questions I couldn't imagine. But <laughs> Here you, we go. But, but you definitely got it. Um, uh, so you had a, uh, the patio project is going fine. Um, like all- Still in process? Like all renovation projects, um, my, we're teaching uh, my young daughters about uh, how construction goes, that my eight-year-old likes to joke that we had said that we'd be done by May. Um, it, we we now should be done by the end of October, but um, six months here and there. Yeah, it's construction. Whatever. Yes, exactly. Um, but uh, I'm looking forward to uh, looking forward to having it. Um, how is making like making an ad? Um, I think the thing that most that most sort of um, aligns those two things is the it's the combination of the functional and the emotional. Um, good advertising or great advertising. Um, and great brands hit on both. Um, I, I kind of have a theory that I think people come to brands for emotional reasons and they stay for functional. Mm -hmm. And I think most marketing flips that, which is why most marketing isn't very good, is we lead with the functional and then follow up with the emotional. Um, and obviously it depends what your ad is meant to do. Um, and so I think, which brand do you think does that well? Put you on the spot there a bit. Um, I agree with you. It's a good insight, great insight. Um, I think Netflix does that well. I think they, they lead with their original programming, um, which I think by definition, a new user has not seen. So I want to see Stranger Things, but I have no idea what it's really like. You might have told me, but mm -hmm. I can't have watched it. They make it impossible. Then I watch it. Now I'm done. And before I cancel and wait for the next thing, I get caught in the catalog. And I, my understanding is we stay when we feel like we see the rest of that catalog uh, and we get enough utility. Um, but the thing that hooks us is that first emotional connection. It's that first belief that something's going to be good before we've actually had it. Every dining experience for the first time is the same way, right? You haven't been to that restaurant. You go because you're excited about it. Um, and then you stay because you found it useful. And I think the, the patio, um, or the fire pit is sort of similar is ultimately I'm only going to be happy in the end if the thing keeps me warm and my kids can roast their marshmallows. Um, but the emotional side of how it looks when you first come to my backyard um, and how I feel sitting in that backyard uh, is, is also equally important. And just because there's a high flame isn't going to do enough for me. Yeah, that's the wow. I thought you might talk about Axe, which we're going to talk about later. I'm sure. We can't not talk about Axe on this podcast <laughs> for reasons we'll get into yes. later. Listen, uh, you've already had, you're still a young guy. You've already had a remarkable career. And what I want to do is I want to go back to your college experience and throw sort of your career path milestones at you. And I would like you, I would like you to react with sort of a, a one word or one phrase description of that experience. Okay. And just to, so our listeners can get to know you a bit better, uh, going back to Yale and a history major. Yeah. It was sort of curiosity and volume. Um, I mean, the thing I learned- Did you specialize in some area of history? Uh, Middle Eastern history uh, in the late 1880s. Um, I, and I, my thesis was on a um, Anglo-Afghani, which was really Anglo-Russian border dispute in a town called Penjde uh, in the late 1880s. Um, which I'm sure you know all about. I'm sure your paper's really good on that, right? Yeah, and I use it, and I use that experience every day in my current life. Um, but what was um, what was amazing about it uh, was just, you know, particularly as a history major. I mean, it was thousands of pages every day that we had to read, 
and I definitely, um, you know, I'm a, I have a low attention span that was hard for me and learning to sort of take away everything I needed to take away to be able to survive in a paper or a test that you couldn't predict, um, uh, but get through all that volume um, was, uh, you know, is, is a lesson that applies to no matter what we do. And, and it definitely applies to me today. I mean, the volume of information coming at us and how do you then thread a narrative through that um, that somebody else can take away and in that case, score you on um, uh, is, is not that hard and far from what being a marketing leader is like. Yeah. I was, I was a liberal arts major as an undergrad and I find I wrote like crazy. I read a lot and I find those skills were so helpful for me at P&G and to this day. Just as you say, sorting through a lot of stuff, being able to make sense of it, draw the themes, communicate them, and and have some actions from them, right? Well, well, the other thing um, is, and I was actually talking to um, somebody who was uh, younger in their career than myself uh, just this week about this, is I think it's pretty clear that you can't predict what you're going to need in 20 or 30 years, much less what you're going to be doing you know, from your personal choices. Uh, and so to think that the best thing to do is to sort of build a very specific skill, um, I, you're taking a pretty risky bet that that skill is still necessary. But there are some things that are going to be needed no matter what. Looking at, I'm pretty confident that looking at tons of information um, and writing a story is going to be important. Storytelling in general is going to be important. Um, combining information with creativity has been important for how many millennium and will continue to be. And so those skills you've got to have somewhere in your repertoire while you also are building some sort of very specific skill for right now that will likely not be the exact thing you need before you finish. Yeah. So next, next, this is your worst job title in your career, by the way, assistant to the assistant secretary for economic policy in the 90s, I think under the Clinton administration, correct? I think it was special assistant. Okay, right. So I, yes. It's even better. Uh, I will say it's amazing in, in government, the titles run, the longer and more involved the title, the more junior the role. <laughs> the person in charge is actually called the secretary. Um, uh, so it's, it's quite funny. Um, uh, that job was the, um, it was fast pace. Um, but the thing, the, the quality of the people that I was working with was unparalleled. I mean, the Times is pretty impressive and it, it, it equals it. But as a, particularly as a young person, the people I had access to, you know, the Secretary of the Treasury was Bob Rubin. Um, my direct boss, the, that special assistant to the Assistant Secretary, the Assistant Secretary uh, was, um, had been the head of um, one of the offices of Lazard Frere. You know, if I had been at his bank, I probably would never have met him 22 year, 24 years old. Um, I worked with him every eight couple hours, you know, and so the ability to learn from people like that um, uh, to, and also my peers have gone on to amazing things. Uh, Sheryl Sandberg was there when I was there. Um, uh, and so um, another person went on to run the Gates Foundation, you know, just that that collection of people and, and the interesting and uh, broad things that they've all gone to do. I, it's just an invaluable experience. It's not what I thought you would say about that job. It's nice to hear. But the principle is go work somewhere where you're surrounded by great people. You're doing a lot of different work and you form relationships for life, right? That's right. And also, I think at certain parts of your career, really going for skill building. You know, one of the things you'll see as we go through this, and, you know, I haven't always known where I was going to end up, 
but I've I've tried to make the choices that there's some story going through it, even though that story is unfolding to me just as it's unfolding sure. to the end world. Serendipity, right? Yeah. So you went from there for your MBA at Wharton. Mm-hmm. So what was that experience? Um, well, so I had, you know, I had never been in a money-making venture other than, um, other than selling cannoli and eclair at, uh, in, in high school. Um, and uh, I wanted to go into business and I thought I really needed you know, a foundation in order to make the shift. Um, and so I went to Wharton. Um, I kind of knew that I wanted to do marketing. I didn't really know what marketing meant. But, um, but I went to Wharton because I, I, I kind of have this belief that particularly in education, you want to educate your, your weaker spots. Mm-hmm. And I actually saw politics as a version of marketing. Um, you know, in, in DC, I was, we were working on either a person or a policy that I believe passionately in that I had to sell to a disinterested audience in a saturated market. Sounds made, like marketing. Sounds like Unilever and Proctor, yeah. right? Um, and so I kind of felt like I had some basis there, although I could have always used more. But the reason to go to business school was to learn finance, was to learn strategy, was to learn the, the things that I thought I, I didn't have a lot of, um, while also getting you know, a, a really great marketing program. And so Wharton was a great combination of all of that. You know, it was a top five marketing program, but a top one finance program. Yeah. What was your favorite course there? Um, negotiations. Very practical, right? Yeah. And, and, and again, a skill, a skill that you don't not have. And, yeah. and in negotiations is really just psychi- you know, psychology. Yeah. So you went to Unilever for 15 years out of Wharton. So we're going to talk a little bit about that more later, but just a little bit about the major lesson from that experience, your big takeaway. Yeah. Um, 15 years is a long time. Yes. Uh, and, um, my biggest takeaway was really about myself. Um, what I love to do is, uh, what I would have said at Unilever, I'd probably tweak it now a little bit, but uh, is I like turning the mundane into the magical. Um, I like taking a category like deodorants, um, you know, where, where when we started, there was one brand claiming 36 hours of protection. I guess that's for people who don't shower. <laughs> um, but um, uh, everyone was screaming functional. And we brought out acts and talked about emotion and just took the functional for granted and assumed you'd also figure out the functional when you used it. Um, and we not only made a brand a, a hit and a sensation for a period of time, um, you know, Saturday Night Live was making fun of deodorant ads um, as hip and cool. Um, uh, but we've changed the whole category. You know, I mean, today's category leaders in both the male and female side are all following the you know, a similar emotional playbook. Um, and, uh, and so that, that's really what I learned was that it is possible to do even, it's probably even more possible to do in the places where we think it's not possible. Mm-hmm. And then from there, you went to Pinterest. Tell me about that. That's, um, that's a change. Wow. Well, so I had always been, I, you know, for Unilever context, I, I had always had a strong digital interest and in sort of non-traditional marketing interest. I did Unilever's first um, what we used to call viral films. I did their first um, video game advertising. I had always been interested in a lot of you know digital businesses, um, and um, I had actually known the folks uh, at Pinterest uh, through that work and had been giving them some advice, you know, with Unilever's knowledge uh, about how to run their, about how to sort of shape their marketing. Um, and in one of those conversations, uh, um, we both knew that I wasn't moving to the West Coast. 
And one of those conversations, we started talking about whether a, a bi-coastal you know, uh, arrangement could work um, and eventually got comfortable that I could do that. And that's how I got there. Uh, but for me, it was, it was very much a, you know, I believe that the fundamentals of marketing um, can apply. And I really don't believe in categories very much as a, as a profession. I mean, obviously as a business, um, but I think that a good marketer can apply themselves in lots of places. And to me, the difference between like a Pinterest and a Unilever, the core difference is really not that it's a different category or even a different customer relationship. The big two differences are that Pinterest doesn't charge the end user. That's giant. It's an ad model. Um, and secondly, is that the company is not centered around marketing. And so as a marketer, and I would encourage everyone to think about it because it's easy to romanticize one or the other um, and not either is right for anyone. You know, it's situational. But I think the being a marketer in a place where marketing is not the center of what they do is just an entirely different business. Um, so where would you say the center of Pinterest is? It's engineering. Uh, engineering and, and design, product design. Um, uh, by the way, the Times is not, is, is not far away from that. Obviously, the center of the Times is journalism, um, but the Times has very much become um, a digital product. Um, and we have a very large and very talented engineering staff. And so engineering is not that far behind. So to be honest, marketing is, you know, if, if lucky, third. Um, uh, and what I think is so different in those worlds is that, you know, at a Unilever, and I assume at a Proctor, but you'll tell me if mm -hmm. I'm wrong, the, the conversation is about, is never about whether you should do marketing. It's usually not even about how much, or when it is about how much, it's about like marginal differences. Sure. Um, it's about how. Um, what I find at places like the Times and Pinterest is as a marketer, the how was up to us. Nobody got in, uh, you know, got, got too detailed uh, internally about what the how should be. The debate was whether to do it at all. And so how you explain it, the type of evidence you need, how you do the emotional and functional side of that internally um, becomes a, a very different game. Um, uh, but I like the freedom to sort of be the one who decided how we execute it. Um, but then the accountability to have to explain why what we were doing mattered. We've all been there. You spend millions of dollars each year driving traffic to your company's website, and then the results come in and they're just not what you hoped. On top of that, 81% of marketing leaders say website ownership is a challenge. So what do you do? Well, you switch to Webflow. Let me tell you why. Webflow's visual first platform empowers your team to own your company's most valuable dynamic marketing asset, your website. From launching a new site to optimizing for SEO and conversions, Webflow gives you the tools you need to drive business growth fast. Unlock your website's full potential when you build, manage, and host with Webflow. Get started today at webflow.com. So on both Pinterest and New York Times, how did you explain wh why marketing is needed or necessary or important? I, I, um, I knew you were going to follow up with that. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. Walked right into it. Um, I mean, look, it is always a journey. And you're never like, I think even making it sound past tense is, is the wrong context. But the, I think the way, particularly at the times we've done it, um, is, is just shown it. Um, you know, really show, not tell. You know, the, the campaigns that we've made, um, uh, which started in um, the spring of 2017. So, you know, you have to remember the election happened 
Uh, there was a lot of uncertainty in the world. Our business really started picking up. Um, and we were thinking about how do we lean into that moment? And so we talked about running um, an Oscars ad, which was something we had never done. Um, and we hadn't and done- you were new at that time, right? Uh, yeah, I was nine months. Yeah. And we had done, um, we had just sort of almost finished the sort of basics of like, who are we stuff. Um, and we were rolling out a brand book and, and it occurred to me that sort of- So for our listeners who don't know what a brand book is, what is a brand book? Uh, you know, an internal manifesto of, of kind of, what do we stand for? What fonts do we use? You know, who's our user? You know, strategy, mm -hmm. marketing strategy, mm -hmm. but, but no execution. Yeah. And, um, and I'd done, you know, something similar at Pinterest. Um, but at the times we sort of jumped on that opportunity and ran a, an ad, uh, The Truth is Hard, during the Oscars. Um, and it was actually, not only was it our first Oscars ad, it was the first time in more than a decade we had spent any money that wasn't about direct acquisition. And um, it was a giant hit. And I think the, you know, everyone who worked at the Times, the people in their lives were reaching out to them and talking about it. And some of the talent at the Oscars were talking about it. And we actually got a standing ovation inside the Oscars hall during the breaks, they show the ads. And, um, uh, you know, the idea that anybody even noticed it, much less, you know, um, commented on it, um, uh, was- Were you, you know, pressed to measure the ROI of that? Um, so, I mean, we're always- I do remember it, I still remember it, and the campaign is still working. Yeah. You're evolving it, but- yeah. um, Yes. And so I think the, I, just to finish, I think the point on that is that they, the, the fact that the journalists and, and management, but the journalists could feel how it sounded like how they would make an ad if they ever did. It just like the idea that the business was now aligned with the mission was not something that had really been true at the times. We had this mission that the newsroom portrayed, and then we told you how much it cost. And the idea that marketing could, could, could be in between those two things, um, I think really- It, backs, it gets back to right your point us. of the emotional and the functional. That's right. I think on the on the measurement, of course, we're always pressed to measure the ROI. But I, we've been pretty clear, and the stuff that we're doing for short term business game, we measure ruthlessly. The acquisition, um, the acquisition work, and we and we we not only measure it, but we we do it. You know, we we organize it around uh, the business performance uh, as any direct to consumer uh, business would do. Um, we have a portion of the money that we try to measure over long periods of time. We're still getting, I think we're actually doing some pretty innovative things to, to try to show that. Um, but it's a, you know, it's not that easy um, as, as we know from the consumer product world. And, um, uh, and so my, my, my management has been really patient with that. And I think because we can all feel the enterprise benefits, um, you know, one of the things that it's also done is it's helped people understand that brand book in a way that the brand book can't do. You know, um, you're not a trained marketer, you're reading this thing, it's useful. But feeling it in a 30 second format um, really just helps people understand like that's what we really mean and has really helped bring the company together um, in the way that a single piece of work can't really do. Mm -hmm. I was walking the High Line this morning on the way to this recording session and I called my wife and talked to her in about a day and I told her I was talking to you and she said, you know what she said? Her first thing was, tell him I love their ads. There you go. It means a lot. And in, an, and in a company where I'm sure she also loves the journalism. Oh, um, she does. Yes. For sure. Then she talked for 20 minutes about the journalism. Of course. Yeah. And I think that, but that's the, like, to, to have anybody mention our advertising. I mean, this is a company that has never had a CMO. 
um, uh, before. You're the first. Yeah. I'm the first, um, at least as far as we know. It's long enough that we never really know, but we can't find that person's name. So um, uh, to think of, you know, to, it, it definitely makes my team and myself really proud to think that anyone would even notice our, our advertising. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, because the journalism is what they should pay attention to um, and do. And so, yeah, it means, it means a lot. And, it's, uh, and I think the fact that we've been able to do work that is noticeable, um, but also drives business performance. Uh, you know, it's, it's the holy grail. Yeah. Marketing. Now, I want to just go back a little bit to your, you know, you talk about your Yale education, the history and helping you as a leader today, really the skills you built. You know, a lot of, a big percentage of your life was at Unilever. So I want you to tell me in a, in a pithy way, what about that Unilever experience helped you succeed as the head marketer at Pinterest and at the New York Times? Um, I mean, it was all about creative brand strategy and creative development um the i think interestingly as technology and data have ballooned and transformed our industry the fundamentals of understanding your brand um, have gotten more important not less even though the number of speeches that we give that say that that stuff doesn't matter anymore um i think it matters even more and interestingly i think many of the leaders of the digital revolution, you know, the big tech companies are all spending countless time trying to figure out what their products stand for and their brands and doing lots of television advertising. Mm -hmm. um, and so the ability to sort of make that the foundation that I have then layered on skills that I could never have predicted existed um, uh, without forgetting the first part is what I think has set me apart and, and makes me valuable in those highly engineering driven companies. So I can't leave the Unilever piece without this question. So you worked for Unilever and you worked on Axe directly. Yes. I worked at Procter & Gamble for 25 years. I remember you well. And I worked, I worked <laughs> on Old Spice. So we had this war, Axe versus Old Spice. What did you learn from that battle between two giants in consumer products with two interesting brands who had a bit of a different view of the market but competed very head-to-head? -head? What did you learn from that battle? Um, well, you know, I was there at the early part of that. And so, but the, the main lesson was, was just to make sure you're, you're zagging when everyone else is zigging or whichever cliche you want mm -hmm. to use. Um, you know, Axe came into the market and the market, you know, Old Spice really didn't have a ton of traction and had a little bit, but, um, uh, and just really coming up with a, or we were using something that was global, but taking that brand positioning and portraying it to the end user to build that emotional connection. Um, uh, and just committing, you know, full bore to it uh, was um, uh, was something that people hadn't done. Um, and then Old Spice quickly, to to their credit, took a year and a half or so. Oh yeah, um, at least at least maybe three. Um, yeah, caught on, and 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 I think the every time we looked like them or someone else, the business stalled. Every time we looked like us and different, the business has you know grew and. Um, and that's something I've taken with me everywhere. The problem is, is that it's hard in the moment to know what you're doing. Mm -hmm. You know, nobody ever launches something going, you know, I'm going to do derivative work now. Right. Um, yeah. uh, and so it's only with hindsight that you can look back. And so the question that I always think a lot about is how do I know that this is really different and fresh and authentic to who we are? Um, uh, and then to be really ruthless with yourself as you're going forward to say, now that I can see it in the light of day, is it really that? And if not, get away from it pretty fast. On the other side of that, the P&G side, we so 
we tried to make Old Spice like you. That's right. So we chased you and chased your insight. We weren't our, we were ashamed of where we came from because it's this funky old weird brand that granddad used and with the weird jingle and all that stuff. And finally we ended up, you know, we didn't do this often at PNG, but we fired our agency and moved to Widen and Kennedy. It was the, really the first brand we gave them. And Widen and Kennedy came back to us and said, be proud of where you came from and let's just make it funky. Mm-hmm. And kids will like funky. And so, and that's what we did. So it was, it, it became very different looking and feeling from Axe. And we found our own places. And I think both brands did well. But the lesson we had was the same one you had, you know, be yourself. That's right. And what would happen occasionally is somebody would come up with a internally fun idea of like talking about the other brand and it would never work. Um, we would do it, you would do it um, uh, because that's not what it was about. And I think one of the things I think we as marketers don't pay enough attention to is one of the reasons that I think being different works is, that, is the internal impact. It's just more fun to be inventive and to be creative. And, and, and even people who pride themselves on their data um, uh, and their technical skill still like being creative, right? It's just, it's something about being human. And, um, and they like it when their friends and their mothers come up and talk about their stuff. And I think that when you look like everybody else, that doesn't happen. Right. And so the, the, the building, that was part of the lesson of that Oscars work at the Times, was building that momentum just breeds success because people are going to, they're going to think in their showers about how to try something else. Um, and when you're just doing, you know, when you're just following the brief um, and following what everyone else is doing, they're not going to do that. There's no brand in the world who could have done that campaign other than you. So you, you, you could have taken your name out of that. It would have still been the New York Times. Yes. And I think, look, both Axe and the New York Times, I think that's true. And I think the, um, that to me is the standard for anyone who doesn't, you know, who's listening, who doesn't do marketing um, you know, as their day job. That's the standard of a brand strategy is that hopefully it means others couldn't, but it certainly means that you could have done it. And I think we forget a little bit when we do this stuff about the importance of sort of track record and even in new brands um, and, and building up a base of, of, of authenticity that you're then building off of. You, know, you come out of left field and in the modern world, they're just going to jump on you, particularly if it's particularly opinionated kind of stuff. But if you come from a place where it feels like something you've stood for for a while, you can be highly controversial and actually you know, quote unquote, get away with it. Yeah, that's Nike, of course. Right. Like, Nike, of, of course. Best I think the Times yep. is, you know, um, uh, we've had examples where we're doing things um, and with other partners. And if there's some controversy, uh, you know, when it, um, when it feels like something that's about free speech and about facts, people don't say much to us. Um, but if you're sort of off your topic, um, you know, you can get in trouble for it. Yeah. By the way, you're a very good teacher. Oh. Just having this little chat with you. Thank you. So you ought to think about maybe going back to the classroom at some point because you, you're, you're very, very clear and helpful about concepts and marketing and, uh, and making it important and relevant and useful for a business. So I don't know what you do as a side hustle, but that could be interesting. I, I def, well, we can talk about okay. it uh, later, well, but I do think it's the, it's the last five years of my career working at places like Pinterest and the Times because I spend most of my day, particularly in my role, my job is to be the one in, you know, talking to the rest of the company. Uh, and I spend most of my day trying to explain why we should try something, you know, uh, in marketing, 
I mean, interestingly, I, I'm pretty confident that no one besides my boss and the people who hired me um, was, you know, was sitting in the newsroom going, I sure hope they hire a CMO tomorrow. You know, um, the focus correctly was on, you know, who are our journalists and what do they do? Um, and I think now people are quite happy that we have the marketing team we have, but we had to earn that and we had to explain why it mattered. What would you say is the key to success for today's CMO? If you said data, you wouldn't be the only one. At Deloitte, however, we believe data is only half of the equation. The other half, story. Because data is the language of business, but story is the language of humans. And we believe the most successful CMOs know how to harness the power of both data and story. To learn more about Deloitte's CMO program and how we can help today's CMOs succeed, visit cmo.deloitte.com. So I want to talk a bit about the New York Times CMO. I mean, that's like, wow. I mean, that has to be one of the coolest jobs in the world. And I want you to tell me about that. You were at the Times a bit before you were appointed CMO, but tell me what you do, what's your work, where do you focus, what is marketing at the New York Times. So could you deconstruct that a little bit for our listeners? I think it's really interesting. Yeah, that was, uh, it's hopefully don't rattle on too long. That was, that, that's it's a lot of questions. That's a lot. Yeah. But the, I mean, a couple of things to sort of set the context, I think. Um, you know, the, the New York Times today is a digital consumer subscription business. Um, you may think of us as a newspaper um, uh, or in a very old legacy business. All those things are true. Um, and we still have a very successful newspaper business. But at our core, our growth, our future, and our current business um, are turned on individual subscribers, individual people reading and subscribing. Um, and interestingly, they need to do that in a world where a lot of the news is available for free. So imagine another business. You know, um, imagine our old world, you know, if Axe were competing against Old Spice. And Axe was free and Old Spice was $3. Or even more. Imagine yeah. if Axe only charged um, on the seventh or so let's say we, you bought 10 cans a year. Axe only charged on cans eight, nine, and 10. Um, and Old Spice never charged, but had a New York Times logo on the back, which paid for Old Spice's business. Mm -hmm. I'm pretty confident that Axe would sell zero cans of deodorant in that world. Um, and um, that is exactly the world we're in. And so in that context, um, we need to explain to people not just that they should choose us over like other things, they choose over stuff that doesn't even ask for email, their, their email address, much less ask them to pay. On top of that, we're a premium product in the market, so we're asking you to pay quite a bit. But competing with a, with a cheaper product is hard. Competing with free is really difficult. Um, and so we have to earn every single day um, uh, a, a, a quality difference um, on something that is a creative product. I mean, it's news and it's facts, but it's a, it's a written product, you know, um, visual product. Uh, and, um, and we have to earn that difference when it's not always so obvious um, uh, from an audience that's, you know, moving quickly um, and often interacting with us atomically through platforms and other places where it's not so easy to see our difference. And so, what that world has set up a world where we need marketing in a way that we haven't before, um, because we need to be able to tell that story uh, that may not be obvious from just reading one article. Uh, and obviously, when someone's reading an article, they're not looking to see how the times is different. They're looking to understand that topic. Um, and so 
that is what we've sort of morphed our marketing into. We also have our marketing, um, you know, cultivate the demand we have, call that performance marketing. Um, you know, come in when you're pretty interested and give you the right business terms. Uh, um, and so we need to do both those things. And we've been trying to bring those two things together because ultimately we're a pretty small business with fairly limited funds. I haven't met the business that doesn't feel that way, mm -hmm. um, but, but I think in our case it's true. Um, and so how can we bring those two things together without, without hurting performance uh, on the short term, but also looking to the long term? And so that's kind of what we do. Um, we go around this absolutely singular institution um, with a product that is truly different and provides a really different experience. And we try to tell that story so that we can get a, an audience that doesn't quite think that way or thinks kind of that way, but doesn't think about it to realize that it's there and then to step up and say, I need to pay for this myself. So what's in the brand book for the New York Times? What are the points of difference? What's the purpose at the top? What's the personality? I suspect those kinds of things are in the brand book. They, they are. Um, you don't want to talk about fonts and kerning. Um, <laughs> no. Uh, yeah. Next episode. Thank you, right, exactly. Um, I, we think our core thing is that we seek the truth and help people understand the world. So like most um, brand statements. It's very true to you. Yeah, you have to unpack it though. Uh, I think the, the seek the truth part is our core mission. It's the thing that, that really has defined us for 100 plus years. It's the thing we would go out of business to do, um, uh, which is the part that's not stated in there is wherever the truth may lead without fear or favor. You know, we will, we will um, write uh, stories no matter, no matter what our advertising interests are, no matter what our readers are looking for. If that's what the news says, we're going we're gonna to follow it. Um, and, and that is truly true. Um, uh, the help people understand the world we think the words that really set us apart there are the words understanding and the world. Um, and so look, all news sources um, help impart information and knowledge. We think understanding is a times word. It probably means you need multiple touch points. It probably means you need multiple formats. It probably means that the reader needs to do a little bit of work themselves. Um, and we think all that's okay. Um, and then the world really has two connotations. Um, it's the literal one. The, no, no one has more uh, journalists in more places than we do uh, and the commitment to do that, um, except maybe the wires. Uh, and um, the world is also your world. It's the no one's covering cooking to politics, uh, to culture. The articles I've saved. The article, yeah, your, 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 your opening is exactly, um, no one's doing that more. And so I think that creates this relationship with you uh, that nobody else can do. And then the best way to get value from that relationship is to, you know, as a subscription. And so that's how we end up there. And it seems like you're, if I can use a kind of a Unilever word, maybe you're kind of flankering the brand, like, you know, the podcast mm -hmm. is, a, is a flanker, the daily, your Sunday night television show, mm -hmm. which I, I'm really compelled to watch. I haven't done it yet. So I have to get off, you know, so please do, but it looks really good and it's doing well and I'm aware of it. And, but your topics you choose are really good. So it seems like you're, you know, Flankering line extensions. I'm not sure that's the right concept, but you are broadening yep. the way you're approaching people. And, and uh, so tell us a little bit about that. How did you decide that? Was that tough? Was that controversial? Um, well, and we, have a, we have a very successful subscription cooking product, uh, which I think most people would believe you can't have, um, and we do. Um, we have a 
standalone crossword subscription, sure, yeah. um, which is very popular. My wife's first go-to in the morning. Yes. Crossword. Mine's news. Hers is crossword. There's now multiple games you can play, um, spelling bee, tiles, uh, and um, you know, very popular for a lot of people. Uh, and so I, I think for us, I mean, we definitely don't use words like flanker. Um, uh, I think for us, we have this broad relationship with the user and we want to be able to you know, meet you on your terms. Um, and so that's how we think about it is that your wife, I take it, wakes up and, and plays our crossword. Well, Within the first five minutes. Right. Well, she should be able to do that. And you should also be able to wake up and look at the most important news, you know, breaking news in the morning. Um, and you should both be able to do that. And we should be able to get paid for you doing that. And I think that's, that's how we look at it. It's more about sort of, I think particularly in a digital world where, you know, we can launch a product anytime we want to, um, and we can change it whenever we want to. It's less about sort of that sort of, you know, Unilever Proctor concept of product innovation and more about thinking about the end user and saying, can I meet your demand? And can I take what I'm already offering and make it more about you uh, and more useful to you? At any given time, how many experiments would you have going on about different things for the user within the New York Times? I mean, too many to, you know, too many to, to even That's put a good. number, tens of thousands. Um, we are very much, uh, you know, a, a digital tech product now. Um, I said, we've got a lot of engineers and we're, we're, we're morphing quickly into that world. But just as you would think of a Facebook or a Google sure. or an Uber, um, uh, same kind of same kind of setup. And I think it's, it's interesting as a marketer in that world um, because the, while we still do make a couple of ads and they're still made in a very similar process to how we made them at, at Unilever uh, and people before me made them at Unilever, um, how we work on that day-to-day -day product marketing is dramatically different. And you know, it's more about how fast can you get it out the door um, and see how it does right. uh, so that you can immediately learn and change. Um, because trying to predict what, how people are going to react is usually less effective than just checking it out. So how do you spend your time? You're the head of marketing. So what, yeah. what do you focus on? Um, What's a typical day or week like? Uh, well, the first thing is there is no typical okay. day or week. Partic I think that's true of any CMO today, um, but I think it's particularly true in the news business. Um, spend a, a, a portion, a good portion of the time trying to make sure we really understand and articulate to the company how we feel about the brand strategy. Uh, both our marketing team and then broader. Um, spend another good bit of time working with my cross-functional peers um, in bringing that marketing message to life in things that marketing doesn't own. Product experience, product design, uh, future, you know, we, we definitely do not get involved in independent newsroom decisions, you know, individual, this story, that story. Um, but big picture, you know, should we have a television product and what is the new, how overt is the New York Times role in that? And those kinds of things we get involved in. Um, and then lastly is the execution of marketing. What's the next ad? Um, how integrated to make it? Uh, the other day we did a campaign um, using that same campaign. Uh, we, had an, uh, we did some incredible um, coverage of a New York subway system. Um, and we took that as the backbone of a push we did around our entire metro section, which has been revitalized under uh, its new editor, um, Cliff Levy. And so we did a whole thing about uh, called The Truth is Local. And we did an installation in each of the boroughs highlighting the um, one piece of investigative journalism we did in each borough, 
Um, and so like that kind of stuff, which ends up being both ourselves and then working closely with the newsroom to figure out what's the most important story to tell. What do you think your most important relationship is within the New York Times for you to get your job d done well? You had to pick one. Wow. I think one of the things that's really true about modern digital working is there isn't one. Mm -hmm. um, I'm sure you won't let me cop out that way, but um, no, it's, I, I think the, it's uh, the truth. I think, I mean, I, it, it is literally, I think the thing that has really changed is we're moving much less from this sort of generalist leading everything to a group of experts who are really good at something and also really good at working together. And so if I had any advice for people, not just in marketing, but just generally, um, particularly starting out in your careers, is to get good at something um, that will be important to whatever, wherever you want to work, but then also make yourself able to work with other experts um, so that you can come together and make that collective whole. Um, and that's, you know, any, anyone who's in engineering, uh, product engineering knows that. You know, you have to have data scientists, you have to have product leaders, um, you have to have engineers, um, many places you have to have product marketers and that whole group has to come together. Uh, and if you don't believe in the value of those other disciplines, my, my sense is it doesn't go as well. I wish we didn't end this, but we're going to end it. But first I want to do sort of a rolling thunder round and get your commentary on a number of things. So I'm going to just start shooting it out to get to know you better as a person and as a leader. So the first one, David, is what's the first section of the New York Times that you read in the morning? Um, it's, it's the daily. It's the daily. We talked about that already. So, and how about uh, reading? I mean, the daily is one you listen to. Do you yes. read? Do you I, I open do up your app? When I, you're I, I open up my app and the first thing I do is I look at the homepage. Okay, got it. Um, I look at the home screen uh, and, I, uh, uh, and I start there. The other thing, actually, the truth is the first thing I read right after the daily is I read the daily briefing. Um, which I get an email. Yeah, right. Um, uh, you can get it different it's ways, good. but yep. I get an email and, and that lets me then dive in um, and then I'll check the home screen and see what's going on there. Toughest crisis you've had so far at the New York Times since you've been there? Since, since yesterday or? <laughs> since you've been there. <laughs> um, uh, you know, one of the things about the Times is that they're, the, the crises are, are constant. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, that's a giant difference from Unilever. Um, I assume Procter, you know, Unilever, we were trying to get in the news, um, uh, particularly for what's not the world's biggest business. It's not that hard at the times. Um, you know, people are talking about us all the time. So I think the, the biggest thing for me is, is any of the cases where, um, where we do know we've made, where we've done something that we, we know we didn't do perfectly. The, lots of times the Times is being criticized for things that we really don't think we've done. Um, and those are actually somehow easier because you can really be transparent and you can really say, um, this is, you know, look, I think you've got it wrong. That's not what we're about. You know, mm -hmm. we're, we're not oppositional to, to any single person. We're, we're holding everyone in power to account. Um, it's harder when you feel like you've, you've made some sort, of, some sort of error, which happens all the time. Um, uh, and we're really, you know, we're really trying to be transparent in those moments as well. Um, uh, and how do you do that um, in a way that's still respectful to your employees um, and, and keeps you focused on the big picture? Best friends on the editorial side. Um, I, you know, there, there's a lot of them. Um, uh, but the, uh, I think the, you know, probably the most proud moment I've had uh, at the Times is actually there's two of them. Um, 
you don't want a lightning round, but mm-hmm. um, it's okay. one, one of them is, you know, when we got there, no one really understood what marketing would be doing. Um, and now my team actually fields calls proactively from different people in the newsroom saying, hey, I want you to know that we've, I'm, I'm working on, a, on this thing that just came out. Have you ever thought about making an ad about it? You know, the idea of a journalist cool. pitching yeah. marketing. Yeah. And these are people who, 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 who sweat out the job. I mean, they're committed. Most of them are working in, um, are giving up things in their lives in order to do this. Many of them put themselves in harm's way and their families um, out there. Uh, and then for them to sort of come to us um, to help tell their story, I mean, that means a lot. Um, and, and the other one- it Says a lot about you and your team. Yeah. Uh, um, and, you know, we're trying. Um, the, the, other, the other one was um, in the uh, Pulitzer Prize winning um, Harvey Weinstein coverage um, that uh, Jody Cantor and Megan Tui mm-hmm. and others, many others did. Um, there is, a, uh, there is a, a photo that I'm sure will be taught for many, many years, if not decades and centuries, of the moment when they're all huddled over the computer. And they're about to hit go on the on the article, and you know that ended up prompting a movement, and you know became this big cultural awakening for a lot of people. Um, in the front of that photo is um, somebody's, uh, I think it's a briefcase or, or coat, and it has a pin on it that says the truth. That has our ad slogan on it. It says the truth is hard, and if that wasn't enough, the journalist had gone and written the word really. The truth is really hard over top the pin. Wow. And so the fact that we've found a way to talk about our journalism, that these people doing some of the best journalish, journalism of a century thought articulated well what they thought they stood for and what they were going through um, is just a like, I mean, never occurred to me that that could be possible. Yeah. I mean, it's people, it's, it's theirs, right? Right. It's, it's not the companies, it's theirs. It's their mission, their purpose. Which aligns with the companies, and I think even if you're working on a on a business that's less, you know, ultimately our business is human capital, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it is the journalism, but it's the people who do it. Even if you're working on a business that is less that and is more physical product, I think the the ability to sum up. I think marketing's big job is to sum up how two random people would talk to each other about it, and what that connection with the thing is um, in just regular language and the truth is really hard um you know did that for that moment um and yes it was an ad slogan but they saw it as more than that and i think that's what our jobs are so a brand today that you would really miss if it went away in your life sadly i would definitely miss my iphone um uh probably wish i'd miss it less um i uh and i'd miss my playstation 4 a lot Mm, okay there's an insight yeah all right. Last question, I promise. Who else would you like to see on the CMO podcast or listen to and see? Um, I, I just love listening to uh, Fernando Machada, um, who is a colleague. Yeah. But uh, I think what he's done at Burger King um, uh, and just- um, It's been a very popular episode of our podcast. Yeah. You very already popular. had him, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, He was wonderful. Um, so yeah, I just think, and I have him come in. I teach a class in Cannes every year at the big festival for CMOs. I always have him in the room because there's just no one better at pulling creativity out of an organization. Well, and I think that I think even more than that, and that's true, is that even recognizing to care about it. You know, I, I know you were talking with Mark about this as well about you know 
Instead, we're spending all this time talking about our agencies alive or are they dead? And you know, meanwhile, we we step forward and they're still here. Um, and um, and I think one of the things that that Furs taught me is the if you are going to have that relationship, in the end, it's just a bunch of people and you're paying them to be creative. Why would you then bring them in and beat them up all day long and not give them the you know creativity as process? Um, well, actually, when I was at Pinterest, we went to um, to Pixar, and if you've never taken the tour at Pixar, it's absolutely life changing. Um, and they interestingly believe that that creativity is process, um, and that it's about bringing a group of people together, not one single genius. And um, I think that that's uh, I think that's underplayed in our industry. And so, if you are going to pay people a lot of money to do something, um, how do you give them the right conditions to go? To Early go in my it. career, I learned a lot from IDEO and they're the same philosophy. Exactly. It's a process. That's right. If you want breakthrough design and breakthrough ways to solve a problem, it's a process. And, and ultimately- and it's a team. Right. And ultimately, it's people about how hard they want to try. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not something they can articulate. But, um, and it's really about that marginal difference between a four and a half effort and a five effort. You know, if you got people giving a two effort, you got a different problem. But the difference between a four and a half and a five is all the world. Um, and I think we spend too much time, particularly in portfolio companies, trying to bring the two up to a four. Um, and I think the, the real game, and I think, again, Burger King's been great at this, is how do you get your four and a half to a five? And, and I think that that's, the, that's in the end when you've, got a mo- when you've got a movement and when you've got, you know, and, and the Times is that. The Times will take some of its best work and criticize it. You know, we, we never do a good enough job. Um, and I think that that, uh, that mindset is really helpful. That's a great last word, David. This has been wonderful. Thanks for having me. That was my conversation with David Rubin. What I loved about this one was David's energy and passion and commitment to the purpose of the New York Times and how he's bringing that to life with great flourish and great creativity. That's it for this episode of the CMO Podcast. If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends. And I would be super happy if you subscribed so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The CMO Podcast is a Gallery Media Group original production.